Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Red Hills Church Podcast. We are so glad that you are joining us from wherever you are joining us. Don't forget that next week we are shifting from two gatherings to three gatherings, and it's because our George Fox students are back. Welcome to all of you who have joined us this morning. I can't wait to meet you and see you in person. We'll be celebrating the kickoff of fall with Kona Ice, so that'll be happening after each of the gatherings, so look forward to that. And if you're joining us online, we are offering the live stream at the 10 a.m. gathering. Today is the cutoff day for the uh, stock, the school resource rooms. We wanted to show our teachers that we love them, that we support them, so we uh, have an Amazon wish list available on the website. So today's the last day to make those purchases, so if you want to support our teachers and show them that we're here for them, you can do that on our website. You are new, we would love to connect with you, which is why we have connect cards. So if you could fill out one of those and give us some information, we'd love to follow up with you. Also, a way that we worship together is through our finances. So if you'd like to give today, you can do so online. Uh, This morning, we are going to be continuing in our series in the book of James, and Brett Kinberg is going to be sharing the word with you. So enjoy. Well, hey, welcome to church today. We're so glad that you chose to join us today. We know that Sunday mornings are a great morning, and you guys have a choice in what you do. So we're glad that you chose to be with us here at Red Hills Church. Like Pastor Lane said, my name's Brett Kinberg. I am the Connections Pastor here at Red Hills Church, and I have this wonderful opportunity to continue on in the book of James. Um, but first, a little introduction to me. I know we've, we've got some new faces in the room, so if you don't know what a Connections Pastor does, What I am in charge of is I'm in charge of our next steps, which is our discipleship process. What it looks like is us getting to know you and uh, you getting to know us better. And so if you've never been through Next Steps before, we would love to have you in there. Uh, We will be launching our Next Steps class next week. So go ahead, come out, join us for Next Steps. We'd love to get to know you a little bit better. Also, what I get to oversee is our groups. Our groups are launching in fall. Um, Signups are going live next weekend. So woo-woo, go groups. I'm excited. Um, What these look like is we know that people grow in community. When you go from a big room like this into a smaller group, group where you can actually get to know someone face-to-face, then you grow in your relationship with Christ. And so our hope and our desire for you is to go get signed up for a group next week when they are available. We, we know that it will help you grow in your relationship with Christ. But in that, let's go ahead and launch into the book of James this morning. If you're taking notes, um, we're going to be going from verse 14 to verse 26 of James chapter 2. I'm going to be reading out of the NIV, and if you like to take notes on your phone, which I do every weekend, you can go to the Church Center app, you can click on more, and then click on the message notes, and you can follow us from there. Or you can go over to the Bible app, look up the events at your local, uh, in, in the local area, click on Red Hills Church, and you can follow notes from there. Um, But before we launch into that, I just want to pray really quick and invite Holy Spirit to, to bless this message. Father, thank you so much for what you're doing in this place. God, we we are so grateful and we're thankful for the word of God, the words of God spoken to us. God, we know that they're powerful. We know that they have the ability to change our lives. So today, God, as Paul prayed, over, over the church at Ephesus, God, would you open the eyes of our understanding 
Would you enlighten us, Father, so that we would know how great your love is towards us, that we'd be able to understand that, God, this morning as we read through your word and how it applies to our life. God, we thank you for all of these things, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this is the fourth week in the series of James, and in four weeks, we've had four different speakers. Um, so if you're, if you're following along and you're going, man, how does that actually work? How do you all stay on the same page? It's because we're all reading off of the same pages, the Bible, right? We're reading from the book of James. And so I love that as Lane came in and he launched this series, um, I, I had a conversation with him because I was, I was helping prep for week one just in case Brooklyn came early, um, and, and fortunately she waited so that, so that Lane could launch week one. But I asked Lane, I said, you know, we're, we're launching a series, and how you start something is very important. Um, there's, there's this law of studying the Bibles, and, and, and it's the law of first mentions. So when you start something, it's very important that you get off on the right foot. So I asked Lane, I said, hey, if Brooklyn comes early and I have to uh, teach your message, what is the heart behind it? What do you want to say to get this started? And he said, Brett, really what we're looking to do is we're looking to allow the Bible to speak for itself. We're not here to tell people how to think or what to think. We're here to open up the word of God, explain exactly what is being said, and then allow people to make a decision for themselves. We are coming at a place, we are coming from a place of humility. And that's as, as ministers and as every person that has come up here and spoken, what we are all here to do is to humbly submit ourselves to the word of God and allow it to transform your lives. I can do nothing to transform your life. In case you didn't know, I can't change your life. Um, the only person who's, whose life I've really changed is my wife, Caitlin. She's sitting in the back. Um, she's, you know, okay, maybe I've changed a few others. But, but really, this, this word is here to change your life. And so I, I hope that as you listen to it, as, as you listened to the messages that have been spoken from James 1, um, as Lane launched into it, he said something amazing. And I, and I just want to bring this one point out because we're going to be talking about it a little bit later. But J Lane said, you know, Brett, you can't just have faith without doubt. In fact, faith implies that you do have doubt because faith is the essence of things that we don't see, right? The, the things that we hope for, but we don't yet see. And so you, it's not that you have faith without doubt. Faith is truly the audacity to trust God in what he is doing. And it's important that we understand that because we're going to be talking about Ab the life of Abraham here in a few minutes. And, and, and I think that's going to shed some light on the situation. But that was week one. That was one of the points. If you want to hear more, please go back and listen to that message. It was amazing and it was a great launch to this series. So if you're new, please go back, watch the message. But week two, Kate Swanson got to get up here and let us know how we are to respond to the word. That the word demands readiness of us. That we should be quick to listen and slow to speak. And also that when we read the word and when we allow the word to penetrate our hearts, that we don't forget what we've read, but we actually become doers of the word of God. And then last week, Sunshine Eddie came in, and yes, that's her name, Sunshine. Um, she came in and she opened up how the word really makes uh, uh, an application in our life in the way that we don't prefer one person over the other. 
that we come in and that we treat people as image bearers of our God, that we wouldn't honor the, the rich and, and despise the poor, and, and that, that we would come at people from a place of humility, understanding that God created them and died for them just the way he died for us. And it was so, so good. So again, if you have not watched these messages, please go watch those messages. I promise that they will change your life. But as we launch into the latter half of chapter 2, we're going to begin reading. And I'm going to take this a couple verses at a time. I don't want to, I don't want to overburden you with everything that is in this because it's, it's, it's a very light text. It's talking about faith and works, right? Um, so so let's, let's begin to read in, in verse 14 of chapter 2. James launches and he said that he says this it what good is it my brothers and sisters if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds can such faith save them suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food if one of you says to them go in peace keep warm and be well fed but does nothing about their physical needs what good is it in the same way, faith by itself without an accompanied action, uh, sorry, with, if it is not accompanied by action is dead. And James is going to make this statement three times as we go through this text. Faith without an accompanying action is dead. And, and, and as, we, as we look through this, I think for us as believers, we, we look at, at this statement that he makes is, can that faith save him? And, and we have to challenge ourselves in this and go, okay, wait, hold on a second. I know that Paul says in Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if I confess with my mouth and I believe in my heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, that I will be saved. Okay, so we know that that is Bible, that is truth. Okay, there's also other places where Paul talks about there is nothing we can do to qualify for the goodness of the gift of God, which was Jesus Christ. He died for us while we were yet sinners. So there is nothing we can do to qualify ourselves for that gift. So what is James talking about here? Well, I, I think James is, is, he's really speaking to this group of people, and I'm, I'm a little bit of a history nerd. Um, sometimes I like to dig into the context and look at what's happening during this time. James is the, the brother of Jesus. We, we've learned this over the past couple of weeks. Most scholars agree that it is the half-brother of Jesus. And so James actually did not come to an understanding of Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior until after Jesus rose from the dead. So while Jesus was here, you know, they're, they're living life together, they're brothers and all of that, but he did not recognize him as his Lord and as his Savior. How many of you can imagine that moment when Jesus comes back from the dead and goes, see, James, I told you so. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's that moment where like James is like, oh my gosh, I, I, I wish I could be a fly on the wall in that conversation of like him going, wait, so what? Oh, that's what you were talking about. I thought you were just kidding around, man. Um, so, so in this moment, we see this relationship of James to his half-brother, Jesus, after rising from the dead. James becomes sold out and becomes a believer. He becomes one of the people that most of the church looked to for his sagely wisdom. James was full of this practical knowledge of how to apply God's word to our daily life. 
But then also James, when he writes this book, as, as we saw in chapter one, he's not writing to everybody out there that calls themselves the church. He's writing specifically to the nations of Israel, spread, or the, the children of Israel, the 12 tribes that are spread throughout the nations. Now, his greeting does imply that he's greeting everybody who calls himself a part of the body of Christ, but more specifically, he's talking to these Jewish believers. And these Jewish believers, they all have this, this sentiment that Jesus came to die for us. We are God's chosen people, and therefore, when Jesus died, he came to save us. And so James says, I, I want to open up a few things in your eyes. I want you to see past your own salvation and look at the world around you. What good is it if your faith saves you but does nothing to impact the world around you? Faith without an accompanying action is dead. And though it does something in you, it is not doing what it was sent to do, which is impact the world. Why did Jesus come? He came that all men might see him and be saved. And so in this moment, James is writing to these people, to these Jewish believers and saying, look, I understand that you say you have faith and that's great, which we'll read here in just a moment. He said, but really, what, what are you doing to make a difference in the world around you? When, when, when he makes that statement, can that faith save him? Some, some, uh, some translations say, can that faith save them? Can that faith save you? If you look in different translations, what he's looking at is he's saying, is that faith actually doing something great to, to reach the world around you? It's not just for you. And so in that, it takes us on this, on this moment of introspection, if, if it were, to say, what is my faith? What is the purpose of my faith? Is my faith just for me to understand that God died for me, sent his son to die for me, or is my faith to do something real? And then he goes on to write this in verse 18. He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? So James makes the same statement, right? He, he, first he says, faith without an accompli, uh, accompanying action is dead. But now he changes his verbiage a little bit and says, well, actually, really what I'm saying is your faith is useless if it has nothing to support it. And, and, and how many of you guys know if, uh, if you have a tool at home, like say it's, a, say it's a pair of trimmers or a lawnmower and you can't get that thing to start, we would call it useless, what, what, what do we do with useless things? We throw them in the garbage and we get rid of them, right? So James is not saying, I want you to get rid of your faith. What he's saying is your faith isn't doing anything to be productive. Don't you realize that your faith is useless? And he's speaking to these people. And, I, and, and as I'm looking at the church in Jerusalem, you see that in the early years of the church in Jerusalem, which is where James was the pastor, he started looking at all of his brothers and sisters around him and literally was watching people die of starvation in the church because they were being persecuted. 
So when he makes the statement, what good is it for you to say, be warmed and be filled, but do nothing to meet their physical needs? He's watching people suffer from that kind of faithlessness. And so he's charging believers, mostly the children of Israel spread throughout the nations, but also us here today. That's why this book was written. But James begins to challenge us and say, what is your faith doing? Is it useful or is it useless? And, and Jesus made this statement in, in, in his teachings. He said, what is salt good for if it loses its saltiness? What do we do with it? We toss it out on the street where all it's good for is to be trampled underfoot by men. What is our faith good for if it's not making an impact in those people around us? This is the point that James is making. James is looking at these people and he's saying, I know that you have a love for God. And that's great. In fact, you people are Jewish and you understand that there is one God. Abraham, the father of your faith, knew that there was one God. In fact, he's going to talk about Abraham here in just a moment. But he says, you understand that there is a God and that you are his children. You understand that Jesus came and died for you. But what are you doing to spread that message? The, the Jewish people at this time, when they had received Jesus as their Lord and their Savior, they began to slip into a place that we would call complacency. Looks very much like the American church in some ways, where we say, we're Christians, we're saved. Hallelujah, amen, it's done. And we stop right there. James looks at these people and he says, why are you stopping with your own salvation? Do you not love people enough like Sunshine was talking about last week? Do you not love people enough to welcome them all into your house and say, God wants to do something in you because you bear his image? And in that moment, James recognizes something that the church is not only being useless, but it's dead. It's not, it, it's not providing a use in the world that we live in. And so he, he goes on to challenge these people specifically by, by talking about the father of their faith, Abraham. Let's continue reading. In verse 20, I'm going to reiterate this. He says, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. And... and and, and we're going to stop there because I think this is probably one of the most, if not the most, controversial statement that is made in this book. So much so that um, anybody know who Martin Luther was? The original Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, but the, the original guy back in the 1500s. This Martin Luther actually pulled away from the Orthodox Church where they thought you have to do something to show us your faith. The Orthodox Church was full of systems and processes and man's ability to try and get to God. 
Martin Luther said, wait, wait. What Paul says is we are saved by faith and by faith alone. And so in this moment, we see James almost challenging this thought that Martin Luther built so much upon. In fact, where we are today, where we know and understand that the prayer of faith is what saves us. So why is James bringing up Abraham and talking about what he did as righteousness? Well, I think we have to look at the context. You see, James says, he talks about Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac on the altar, right? And, and that was in the latter part of Abraham's life. But then he actually quotes the scripture that when Abraham believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness. That happened many, many years before Isaac was born. We see, in fact, as God calls Abraham out of this foreign nation where they're worshiping the, the, the celestial bodies, the sun and the moon and all of this, and, and Abraham comes out of these people, and God says, I'm going to separate you to myself, Abraham. I want you to go to the place that I've chosen for you. I'm not going to tell you what it is yet, but just start moving, and we'll get there eventually. And so Abraham believes God, and he follows God. And he's called the father of our faith because he gets to this land and God says, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the heavens. And Abraham's out in the middle of the desert where he can see the stars really clearly. And he goes, wow, that's what you're going to do for me, God? That's amazing. And he believed God in that moment. And what happened? It was credited to him as righteousness. So in this moment, we see that righteousness was given freely by God, not earned, there was nothing that Abraham did that actually credited that righteousness to him. It was God's choice to give it to him. And so by faith, we see this, this move of the father of our faith to trust God. But was he righteous? No. No, in fact, after this moment, we see Abraham go down to Egypt. Um, there's a famine in the land, and Abraham has to move his family down to Egypt. And when they get there, Abraham's like, you know what? My wife is, like, hot, and I think these Egyptians are going to try and kill me and take her as their own. So let's lie and say that you're my sister. Um, that way, they will, they will give us favor, and they, and they will do things for us because they will want to take you as their own. And so we see that Abraham has this problem with lying. Anybody in here? You don't have to raise your hand. Please don't. Um, but, uh, but, but in this, Abraham's got this lying problem. Also, after he leaves Egypt and, and, and you know, okay, the lies was discovered and all this, and he leaves and goes back to his own land, he gets there and he gets tired of waiting for God to fulfill his promise. Abraham looks at Sarah and Sarah at Abraham and she goes, I got this idea. Why don't we give you my servant and we fulfill the promise that God has given us. We, we go ahead and take action. We're going to go earn the promise that God has given us. And we're going to have a baby through my servant. Abraham does this. He's, he's, he's given the servant. And, and they have a child. His name's Ishmael. And Abraham regrets that decision for the rest of his life. But you see, again, that he is not righteous in what he's doing. He's, he's in fact, working out what God 
has given him. He's working out the promises of God. He's figuring it out as he goes. And Abraham gets to the end, or not the end, but he gets into his latter years. He's 100 years old, and God says, now I'm going to do the thing that I promised I'm going to do. And Abraham sat there and went, okay, God, um, I'm 100. I'm pretty much dried up. I'm dead. And my wife, Sarah, is 90 years old. She's way past childbearing years. So in this... God, you're going to have to do it, but I trust you and I believe you. And we see Abraham beginning to turn this corner where he says, okay, even though I have doubt and I have faith, I'm going to choose the audacity of trust in the midst of that. This is why I think that statement that Lane made was so critical for us to understand because we're looking at this idea of faith and works and how we're justified and how righteousness comes and we're wrestling with the thought of, okay, God, what are you really asking of me? I'm not sure I fully, I'm not sure I fully believe this, but God, would you speak to me anyways? I still choose to trust you even though I don't fully believe or understand what you're asking of me. And how much more when God says, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son to me. I can't imagine. I cannot imagine the moment when God asked him to give up the very precious seed that he had given him. But Abraham didn't shake. He, he, he was not shaken from his faith. Instead, he got up early the next morning. He packed the donkey with the firewood. He grabbed the knife and he said, boy, let's go. And he immediately obeyed God. And there's a principle that James is writing about here in this moment that he's talking about the, the righteousness that God gave Abraham. He credited it to him. Later in his life, when he obeyed without question and started walking forward, he may, he may not have believed, he may not have had no doubts in his mind, but what he did know is that he trusted God. He had walked with God for so many years. He said, I've tried to do things my own way. I've, I've, I've learned that I'm not good enough to accomplish what you're asking of me, God. And I also can't do it in my own power. But God, when you ask me to do something, you come through even when I don't understand it. So God, I'm going to do it. In Hebrews, it says that he believed that even if he sacrificed his son, that God would raise him from the dead. And he didn't know how it was going to happen, but he trusted anyways. And this is, what, this is what James is challenging in us, this faith and this work, where Abraham was made righteous by what he did. What James is talking about in that statement is that he was made righteous before men. The second righteousness that James is talking about is this right standing before people so that he could be the father of our faith and be an example of how to live by faith. Even if we don't trust, or sorry, even if we don't believe, we still trust. And, and he became righteous. Why? Because now he is known not only as the father of our faith, but somebody who obeyed no matter what was asked of him. And, and, and so James is looking at these people and saying, I know that you say you have faith, but what actions are accompanying your faith? Would you allow a world to see a good God in what you're doing? 
rather than just keeping your faith all to yourself? And that's why he goes on and continues to read, or continues to write, rather. We'll read what he said. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? And he makes the statement for the final time. He says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. He changes the wording of this statement that he's made now for the third time. And, and, and law of first mentions is one thing, but when somebody repeats themselves over and over in their writings, they're trying to drive a point home. And he words it very clearly in this last statement. He said, faith without works is like a body without a spirit. It's dead. And he gives us this very real word picture of how our faith is to go into action. Because just like I am standing before you here breathing and an example of God's goodness and what he has done in my life, I'm sitting here breathing the ruach, which is the breath of God, the Holy Spirit that was breathed onto the inside of us when we were created as a living being. I have a spirit that is breathing, that is speaking, that is taking the word of God and delivering it in the best way I know how. And that same breath makes an impact in the world around me. But if I had no spirit, if I had no breath, I would be a pile of flesh here on the ground. In fact, that flesh would begin to rot and stink. People would not want to be around it. In fact, so much so that we take it, we put it in a box, and we bury it six feet underground. So what is James saying? James is saying, you have been saying that you have faith and that God has saved you. And that's great because even the demons believe that. But your faith should move you into action so that the world can see the goodness of God. Otherwise, and this is what happened in the church, they became a stench in the nostrils of everyone around them. Because they were saying, God is good. God has saved me. He's created me, and he sent his son to die for me. But I'm going to keep that to myself, because that's for me. That's not for you. These Jewish believers were taking their faith and keeping it to their, themselves. They weren't loving the world around them and being what we call the hands and the feet that Paul would write about later in the, in the scriptures. And we find ourselves in this moment where James is asking people to reflect, what is your faith doing? We're moving into a great season where we can be, an, where we can have an impact in our community, in the world around us. As, as we come into fall and as we launch groups and as we launch dream teamers into their positions and as we add gatherings so that we can touch lives, we're all asked to do something with our faith and not just keep it at home with us, not sit at home and read our Bibles and say, oh God, that's good, and then go to work and not make a difference in the world around us. James is saying, what are you doing with the word? Do you have the breath of God on the inside of you? And what is that breath accomplishing in the world around you? When he says, it is like a body without a spirit, 
and is dead. He tells us what we need to begin doing. We need to begin speaking and acting on what we believe to be true. Because if it's good enough for you, it's good enough for your neighbor. It's good enough for your coworker. It's good enough for every person around you because they're all made in the image of God. Let's go ahead and bow our heads and close our eyes. Father, I know that these words are not light and airy, but Father, they're heavy. They cause us to contemplate what you've done in our lives. But God, they, they force us to move into action. God, at this moment, we're, we're, we're faced with a decision. What are we going to do with your word? Are we going to receive it and be saved and allow that salvation to be lived out in the world around us? Or God, are we just taking it and not allowing it to drive us into action? Father, it is out of love that we are moved into action. We recognize how much you have loved us. And because of that love, God, we choose to be moved into action. God, so that a lost and a dying generation around us would not pass by the church and think that we are judgmental. God, that we are inhospitable. But Father, they would look at the church and see a place of hope and of love where they can come and receive of that love in a practical and in a tangible way. If you're in this room today and you've never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. We're going to say a prayer here in just a moment. But for everyone else in this room who has made that prayer before, if you feel like you're in this place where that, that faith has not been lived out or it's not making a difference in the world around you, I want us all to pray this prayer together. And whether you're praying this prayer for the very first time or you're making a rededication of your life, I just want you to repeat these words after me. Say, Father God, I believe that you sent your son for me he died for me so that I could be forgiven of my sins. Today, I call him my Lord and I make him my Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to go ahead and take communion. I, I believe in this moment that we are all faced with a decision to do something with what we've heard. And as, as a start to that, I want us to take these elements and consider what they are. Paul said that when you do this, you should reflect on your life and see what God has done for you. And what Jesus said of this when he broke the bread and when he shared the cup he said, do this in remembrance of me. I want to be very, very clear in this room. There is nothing we can do to earn God's salvation. There is nothing we can do to earn righteousness. But we can live a life of sanctification where we are moved into action by love. And today when we take the bread, we recognize that even before we were saved, even before the, the blood was spilt, the body was broken. 
And that body was broken for us that we might receive peace. When Jesus did that, he fulfilled a prophecy in Isaiah that said the chastisement of, that brought us peace was on him. The punishment for everything that we had done was set on him, and by his wounds we were healed. And in the same way, when Jesus took the cup and he passed it around, he said, this is my new covenant. And now that we've already recognized that you've been healed and brought to a place of peace, I want, I want to show you something. That when my blood is poured out for you, it makes you completely righteous. Because God sees you through me. He doesn't see all of your sins. He doesn't see what you've done. He sees the sacrifice that I made. And in so doing, he washed away every sin that we have ever, are committing, or will commit. He took that on himself. And he said, this is for the forgiveness of sins. Let's go ahead and take communion this morning as we reflect and we think about what God has done for us.